Father, we just thank you for an opportunity to learn about your tabernacle. Because through your tabernacle uh, is an expression of your love and your goodness towards your people. Um, God, we love that you, you in part, uh, built your tabernacle so you could be with us. And so, God, I thank you that that is true, that your son came on this earth to be with us and your spirit now indwells us and that you have always been a God who's drawn near to us. And so, Father, draw near to us tonight. Be with Anne as she teaches us about your word um, and allow our hearts, minds, and hands to be transformed by this time together. It's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. Okay, it's so great to see you all tonight. Um, Judy last week talked about details. So you thought we had details last week. We had some details this week. So my heart for you tonight is that you will see Jesus in all these details. So this week, God says to Moses, he says, build me a house. Now, you can tell a lot about somebody when you go to their house, can't you? So I took a few pictures at my house, and I want you to look at that and just see what you could tell about me from looking at my house. This is in my utility room. What can you tell about me from that? Have a dog. She is a pug. She's really cute. Okay, the next one is the inside of one of my cabinets. What can you tell about me from that? I like candles. I like things to smell good in my house. So I have a lot of candles that I burn all the time. Uh, okay, and I have one more. This is inside of one of my kitchen cabinets. What can you tell me about me from that? I do not ever want to risk running out of coffee. That is for sure. So when God says this week, build me a house, we're going to be able to see a lot about God when we go into his house. And so tonight we're going to look at how that looked in Exodus and how it looks today. We're going to look at the Exodus tabernacle, the true tabernacle, and the new tabernacle. So God says, build me a house. He says, I want to live with you. And when we looked in chapter 25, then he says, and I want you to supply the building materials. Again, not a command, but it was like from everyone whose heart prompts him to give. Build me a house. So I thought, it's kind of like crowdfunding, wasn't it? He was like, just give from what you had. He also wanted um, specific things. He said, I want you to donate gold, silver, bronze, like good stuff. And, you know, not your books you're never going to read, not your college t-shirts, but specific things. And so um, you go, well, wait a minute. These are former slaves who are camping in the desert. Like, where in the world would they get silver and gold? Well, then, if you've been with us in Exodus, you look back and you're like, oh, when they left Egypt, the, the Egyptian people were just giving them stuff like jewelry and valuables. And so, wasn't it ironic that God is going to use the treasure from these idol-worshiping Egyptians to build a house for the true God? Um, kind of cool. Now, God could have just had the tabernacle complete. It could have just like come down from heaven already ready. And that would have been really good too. I mean, you know, I just thought the Egyptian, I mean, the Israelites, they've seen big miracles like that before. That's kind of something they might've seen, but it was not God's purpose. 
God wanted them to be part of what he was doing. So he had resourced them so that they could be part of what he was doing. All that gold and jewelry, it wasn't like, okay, once you, you know, in the wilderness, be sure and wear your good jewelry and drink from gold cups. No, he had a purpose for um, giving them that stuff. So for us, God wants us to be part of what he's doing. He's resourced you and me because he wants us to be part of what he's doing. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to see how this plays out. So, you know, right here, this was just God speaking to Moses and kind of giving the blueprint. But in a few weeks, we're going to really see how they responded to the ask. And we're going to spend a good, a whole lesson, I think, on just this thing to see how that played out, how they responded. But I thought about it, you know, we all know that it's different when we were a part of something coming about. If we've contributed in some way to something, you just care about it more. You kind of have a sense of ownership or investment. And that's how that would be with this tabernacle. So ask yourself, what opportunities is God giving you to be part of what he's doing? Your stuff. Do you see your stuff as his or yours? That'll reveal a lot about your heart and your stuff. And then this week, look for God to reveal your heart in how you respond to opportunities to give. We'll look at this a lot more in a few weeks. But we move on in in, uh, chapter 25, and God gives this blueprint for the tabernacle for his house. Now, how often do you ever use the word tabernacle? I bet you may not, you probably in your group tonight, it's more than you've ever used it in your whole life combined. Um, Scripture also calls it the sanctuary, the tent of meeting, the tent of the testimony. Kind of all that is the same thing, you know, just to make it extra confusing. But we look at that and we go, tabernacle, that's kind of obscure, But I read somewhere that there are only a few chapters that talk about God's creation of the world, but the tabernacle is referenced in over 50 chapters. So it must be kind of a big deal. But I thought, okay, next time you run across one of those chapters and you see the word tabernacle or the idea of the tabernacle referenced, you know, normally we just like skip over it. It just fades into the rest of the words. But next time you see that, you're going to go, I know what that is. Like whatever else you read is going to mean something more because of um, looking at this lesson this week. Now, the tabernacle was going to be in the very middle of the camp. It was kind of like in the bullseye. And so God directed the different tribes to camp around the perimeter of the tabernacle. So for all of them, it was kind of the view out their front door. So the tabernacle was a visual reminder. It was a visual reminder of God's presence in the center of their lives. And it was a visual reminder of what God's like. So the tabernacle was portable, as you saw. So it kind of went with them all the way to the promised land. And um, kind of the way it worked, it was kind of like... I go, you follow. God's presence was visible in that pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And so when they saw that pillar kind of start to move, that was their cue to pack up the tabernacle, pack up the camp, 
and move. It was moved about 30 times before they got to the promised land. And I read that there were about 8,500 men that were tasked, something specifically with packing up the tabernacle, uh, moving it, and setting it up again. If you read all the details of all this stuff, which I bet some of you did and some of you didn't, but um, a lot of the things had these rings on either side and a kind of a pole that would go through. So like that's how they would pick this stuff up and carry it with these poles. So you saw very detailed instructions. God's like, build me a house, but it has to be a certain way that's just right for me. So I want to take uh, a few minutes and kind of go on a tabernacle tour. When you go in my house, you can tell some things about me. But when you go in God's house, we're going to see some things about him. Now, um, in the scripture we had this week, it described, you know, all these different things. And it kind of started from the inside and went out. But I like to put myself in the scene, like, Imagine what it might have been like to be an Israelite and be camping there, and there's the tabernacle in the middle. Like, if you were approaching the tabernacle, walking in, what would it be like? Now, our tagline for Exodus is rescue, redeem, reveal. So we saw the rescue. We've been spending a few chapters looking at God's redeeming these people, basically saying, hey, you're my covenant people. And so now he's going to really start revealing more about himself. That's what he's doing here. Kind of a visual way that he is uh, revealing himself. So um, when you get to the edge, there's this outer courtyard that was described. And I was kind of thinking, I mean, how big was this? So it was about 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. Basically about half the length of a football field, about half the width of a football field. That was about, that was the tabernacle. Now, I thought it was really great that they put that sketch of the tabernacle in your curriculum. That kind of really helped us to see how it was laid out, um, you know, kind of label all that. But um, I know it was really confusing. There were a lot of details. You might have just skipped over all that. It's good to know, but that is not the big deal. If you can sketch the tabernacle and know what all those things are, That is not the big deal. When you meet Jesus someday, he will not ask you what was in the tabernacle. So if you have no idea what any of that was, don't even worry about it because it's not the big idea. But what God was saying about himself is a big, is the big idea. And so um, I thought I wanted to take each one of the things in the tabernacle and just sum up in one word what God was telling us about himself. So if you want to jot that down in your sketch, if that would be helpful, um, then do that. So the first thing, when you walk in on the east to the tabernacle, you saw this bronze altar. So it was, um, it might have been in your translation called the brazen altar or the altar of burnt offering or altar of sacrifice. But um, the word for that would be sacrifice. And so it really, the picture on that slide, if you were walking into the operational tabernacle, 
it would not have looked like that because that's the place the animal sacrifices were offered. So if you walked in, you would see an animal on that and probably blood and you would see fire and smoke. It wouldn't be this pretty pristine thing. So um, they were sacrificed as a payment for the sin of the Israelites. So right when you walk in, you see God saying, every approach to me requires blood sacrifice. You approach me on my terms. So the way that would work, oh, on the slide too, um, there's, there's some Old Testament scripture that kind of just tells how this thing functioned, and then I put a New Testament scripture to explain what it meant. I'm not going to read any of those, but if that would help you, if you want to look into it more, jot those down. Um, anyway, so they would take this animal, put it on the altar, you would put one hand on the animal, and with your other hand, you would slit its throat. So if you were an Israelite, this this innocent animal would have to die because of your sin. Wow. And the priests were supposed to keep the fire burning on this altar all the time. And you look at that and you're like, what in the world? Like, it, it means God is just. And sin had to be paid for. It had to be paid for with a blood sacrifice. And to God, blood represents life. Hebrews 9.22 that you read this week, um, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So he wanted them, he wanted us to recognize the seriousness of sin and what a great sacrifice is required to pay for it. So this bronze altar, it's a shadow. It's pointing to the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. In the New Testament, it calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in every element of the tabernacle, God is trying to help these people understand what he's like. Now, remember, this is like all new to them. They don't come with this Bible and all this theological stuff that we know about. This is all new to them. He wanted them to understand what he's like so that years later when Jesus came, they would understand who Jesus was and what his death meant. And they would understand the extent God would go to to show us, them, that he loves us. So the next thing on our uh, tabernacle is the bronze basin or laver. And it was not described in our chapters this week, but it's part of the tour, so we're going to look at it. So the word for that would be cleansing. Now, this basin was used only by the priests. They would come and they would wash before they went into the holy place, and they'd wash again when they came out. So it's saying that every approach to God requires cleansing. You've got to be clean to come into God's presence. So what does that mean? Again, it's a shadow that points to Jesus. We can't enter God's presence without being clean, but we're clean because of Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then the only other visible thing in the tabernacle was this kind of a tent within a tent. It contained the holy place and the most holy place. Now, only 
the priests could go into the holy place. If you were just a regular Israelite, if you weren't a priest, if you were a woman, you could never go in there. If you go in, the thing you would see on the left was this golden lampstand, beautiful golden, like seven-branch ornate lampstand. It was gold fueled by oil, and it was never supposed to go out. The word for the lampstand is light. Um, what does it mean? Jesus answers this one, John eight twelve, it says, And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the light in the tabernacle was this shadow that pointed to the true light, Jesus. John 1.9 says, The true light that gives light to every man, Jesus, was coming into the world. Then the next thing in the holy place was the altar of incense. It was kind of on the back a beautiful altar where incense was burned all the time. Word for that, prayer. So the incense was always burning as a picture of unbroken communication or prayer going up to God. What does it mean? Again, it's a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says, He, meaning Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So if you read in chapter 7, it would talk about these priests who live and die and priest after priest would serve and, and burn this incense. But Jesus is our priest forever. He lives forever to be your champion and your advocate. Then the other item in the holy place was the table of showbread. You might have called it bread of the presence. Word for that? Bread. So um, every Sabbath, the priest would put 12 loaves of bread out on this table. What does it point to? It was a shadow pointing to Jesus, the true, the bread of life. In John 6, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. So if you're a Jewish person living at the time of Jesus, and Jesus comes along, he goes, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, you would have been familiar with the idea of the tabernacle temple, and it would have made some sort of sense to you. Like these are not just random statements. God is tying this together. Then the back of the holy place, there's this curtain. Not a thin curtain, but a very thick, heavy, ornately decorated curtain. The word for the curtain is holiness. And so there was a um, historian at the time that said, if you put you tied two teams of horses to either side of this curtain, they could not pull it apart. So the curtain means you come to me only on my terms. Nobody, nobody could go behind that curtain except the high priest. And he could only go back there once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, years later, when Jesus was on the cross, 
He was paying the penalty for our sin. And when he had completed his sacrifice, he said, it is finished, and he gave his life. The New Testament says that at that moment, that curtain, that curtain that couldn't be pulled apart with horses, was torn in two from top to bottom. God was saying, you'll never be kept from my presence again. It was like he was saying, come on in to you, to me. Hebrews 10.20 says, the blood of Jesus opened a new and living way. Well, the last stop on our tour is the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there's only one item. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And the word for that is forgiveness. Now, you may have thought, oh, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was that thing they were looking for in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, of course, I found a picture from that because we can, we can relate to that. So, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the gospel. So, in this Ark, as we saw in our lesson, were these tablets that contained the law, the, the law that condemns us as sinners, And then on top of the ark, the ark is this box, is a lid. Uh, Your translation might have called it the atonement cover or the mercy seat. I happen to like mercy seat. And right on there above, enthroned between the cherubim, it says, was the essence of the presence of God. So that once a year when that high priest would come in, he would bring with him blood from an animal that was sacrificed. And he was instructed to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. So, when God looked down at that mercy seat, he saw the blood of an innocent sacrifice covering the righteous requirements of the law, and he forgives. It's a picture of what God does with us. Now, remember... um, it's, the, it's not the blood of the person being forgiven that's on there. It's the blood of a substitute, innocent sacrifice. So we are condemned because of our sin. But when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see sin. He sees the blood of his son. And we're forgiven. He loves you. He is pleased with you. Because that's what he sees when he looks at you. So it's this perfect picture of Jesus, his justice and his mercy. He is just, the penalty is paid, but he is merciful because the one being forgiven is not the one who shed his blood. Actually, the whole tabernacle is a picture of justice and mercy. When you went in on the east with that bronze altar, it's a picture of justice. But on the other end, on the west, with the Ark of the Covenant, you see his mercy. So he kind of forgives as far as the east is from the west, his justice and mercy married together in Jesus. This whole thing is a shadow of Jesus. So Hebrews 9.11 says, Jesus, as the high priest, entered the most holy place in heaven and sprinkled his own blood there on the mercy seat on our behalf. And that was the last sacrifice that ever had to be made. Because of that, you'll never have to kill an animal. You'll never have to wash your hands to be clean before God. You'll never have to offer incense or bake bread or sprinkle blood 
anywhere. And you'll never be kept from the presence of God again. Now, this whole idea of what went on in the tabernacle, we look at that and we go, that is very weird and it is gross. You go, why does it seem that way to us? It's because we don't have to do it. Like when you came in tonight downstairs at Watermark, there was not this big old bronze thing burning down there. And when the, the women who greeted you, when you walked in, they didn't say, do you have your animal tonight? No, we can enter completely and openly into God's presence anytime we want to. There is no barrier because of Jesus. And because that's all we know, we just got to take that for granted. Like, I really, that really hit me this week. I do. I take it for granted. We look at that, we're kind of like, and so sometimes we want to be in God's presence, sometimes we don't. It's not a big deal to us. But I hope that you will go home tonight feeling like this is a big deal and, and appreciating Jesus even more for what he's done. So every bit of this is about Jesus, the bronze altar. It's about Jesus. The basin, it's about Jesus. The lampstand, it's about Jesus. The altar of incense, about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I took my kids when they were little to a Bible study that taught the Bible to little children. And so every week, the children's teacher would sit down with the Bible open in her lap and she would say, boys and girls, I'm going to tell you a story today. It is from the Bible and it is absolutely true. That means it really happened. So then after the story, she'd say, now I want to see if you were listening. So I'm going to ask you a question. If you know the answer, raise your hand. And so with those very littlest ones, a two-year-old, Every question was intentionally worded, so the answer was Jesus. That's what the tabernacle is. These people were just learning about what God was like. So he, it sounds complicated to us, but he was trying to make it simple for them. It's going to be about Jesus. Walk away with that tonight. So you look at the tabernacle, and you see sacrifice and cleansing, and you see light and prayer, and bread, and holiness, and forgiveness. And what do we see? We see a perfect description of Jesus. Now, I love that they had us read Hebrews 9 at the end. I hope you read it, because that's what tied it all together. So if you want to know more about Exodus and what we're going to be doing for the really the rest of the year, read the book of Hebrews. Like, it tracks exactly with Exodus. And so, um, the, the argument that Hebrews is making is that the, the ministry, the priesthood, the sacrifice of Jesus is better than Moses. It's better than this tabernacle, and it's better than these priests that we're going to learn about next week. Like, knowing the Old Testament has value. A lot of people will look at Hebrews and go, That is a very confusing book. But if you read Exodus and then you read Hebrews, you're like, I get this. So knowing the Old Testament, what we're doing is valuable. What we do in this study, it's like we take a piece of a puzzle and we look like this would be Exodus. We pull that out of the Bible and we spend a whole year looking very carefully at this puzzle piece. 
and we study it and we see what it's like and we try to look at what it means and why we do it. And that is a very good way to study the Bible. And we're going to keep doing that again next year. But if you were to take this puzzle piece and you put it in the whole puzzle and look at it in the context of the whole puzzle, you'll see so much that you didn't see before. You'll be like, oh, these are the three pigs. Oh, well, the big bad wolf. If I just look at that puzzle piece, I wouldn't have known the big bad wolf was there. Well, that explains a lot of things. And so it is valuable to always take scripture in the context of the whole Bible. So I encourage you, as you'll read Hebrews, you'll look at that and you go, I get it. It makes sense. This Bible, one story beginning to end. So I want to stop and just step back and take a look at this whole thing and to go, all that is very interesting. What does it mean to me? This is God saying, I love you. I want to be with you. You're my people. I don't want to be separated from you. So that's how it was in the Garden of Eden. Very um, just intimate fellowship with God. And then when sin messed that up, how did God respond? He was like, I still want to live with you. And so we look in Exodus and we see these people we've seen over and over. They complain, they grumble, they are so ungrateful for what God does to them. They forget. And what does God say? No, you're my people. I want to live with you. Build me a house. And so this tabernacle was with them until they got into the promised land. But when they got into the promised land, they didn't really need a portable building anymore. So they built a more permanent structure, the temple. So really, if you look at the temple, the furnishings, the function is, it's almost identical. It's just, um, it's just not portable anymore. So then we see the true tabernacle. So God came to live with us in the person of Jesus. He's the true tabernacle. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So you look at Jesus, you see God. John 1.14 says of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So that word dwelled um, in the Greek, it would be translated tabernacled. So it says Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. He looked at the battle of sin that we're in that we would never win and he came down, he pitched his tent in the middle of our camp, in the middle of our messiness and he's like, I want to dwell with you. The purpose of the tabernacle was to be a visible reminder to them of God's presence with them and of what he's like. We look at the tabernacle and we go, isn't the person of Jesus such a better reminder than that tabernacle was? And then God offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to fulfill everything in the tabernacle. He fulfilled all those things so we don't need them anymore. Now we have the new tabernacle. So when Jesus left, he still wanted to live with us. So in John 14, he says, I'm about to be gone, but he says, I'm sending you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. He lives with you now and later will be in you he says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. So if you're a believer in Christ and you want to see the tabernacle today, 
Look in the mirror. You are God's dwelling place. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. So God says to you and to me, in spite of all your complaining and ignoring me and living like I don't even exist, how ungrateful and unfaithful you are, he's like, you're my girl. I want to live with you. I love you because I love you. I never want to be separated from you. He says, I'll never ignore you. I'll never leave you. I will never cheat on you. I love you. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price with his blood. Therefore, honor God with your body. So God's Spirit living in us reveals his presence to us and reveals his presence to the world through us. His Spirit living in you is how you know that God is real. It's how you know that he is with you that you are his child, that he loves you. So you go, our body, our mind, our spirit, we are the dwelling place of God. So if you're one of those people who's always like looking for identity or who am I, like here's your identity. You are God's dwelling place. That gives your life purpose and meaning. You know, he didn't look at you and go, oh, not you. You're not cute enough. You're not thin enough. You are not obedient enough. You are not funny enough. No, he's like, I want to live with you. You're just the dwelling place I want to have. He loves you because he loves you. So that should make us live like who we are, loved and valued. So if your identity is as a dwelling place of God, that will keep you from a lot of trouble and regret It made me think of when I was pregnant. When I was pregnant, I had this sense that there was something important inside me. So no matter where I went or what I was doing, I never forgot that I was pregnant. And it really affected what I did. It affected what I did and what I did not do. You live differently because of it. How are you treating your temple? How are you treating your body, your mind, your spirit? It is God's spirit in you, in us, that enables us to live differently. God's like, I know you can't do that on your own, so I'm not even asking you to. Ask God to make you aware of that, that it's his spirit in you that enables you to do anything that God wants you to do. So ask him to help you to honor him in, with your temple, where you go, what you do, what you think about, your conversations with people. Ask him to help you not to numb that temple with substances or to use it sexually in a way God didn't, didn't intend or to just pour junk into it all the time. To help you not spend hours on social media every day looking for validation from people you hardly even know, but to use that temple to serve other people, to nourish it consistently with the word of God. Ask God to help you to do that through his spirit. It's God's spirit living in us. It reveals God's presence to us, but he also uses his spirit in us to reveal his presence to the world through us. 
So he dwells in each of us like individually, but also in a sense, he dwells in us collectively as the body of believers in Christ. So remember a few weeks ago, we talked about 1 Peter 2.9. God tells believers, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, did you notice in that, he didn't say, okay, guys, please try to be a royal priesthood. He's like, no, you are a royal priesthood. And remember back in the tabernacle, how only the priest could go into the holy place? He goes, you are priests. Come on in. Also in the tabernacle, there was that lampstand that provided the light. We saw these verses in our lesson this week where Jesus says in John, he says, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, 14, he takes it the next step and he says to believers, he says, you are the light of the world. Did you notice on that? He didn't say, okay, try to be the light of the world or you really should be the light of the world. No, you are the light of the world. We are God's plan A to reveal himself to the world. That lampstand was fueled by oil, and in Scripture, oil represents the Holy Spirit. So it is God's Spirit in us that enables us to be the light of the world. Like, without that, I'm not that light. Now, today, if God said, build me a house, what would you do? We get the most high-end materials. We would get a primo location, uh, latest features, very um, expensive furnishings. That's not what God said, did he? He said, no, you are a visible reminder of my presence through the world. You are my house in the world. You go, that does not even make sense. Like, we can't possibly represent him well, can we? But for some reason, he chose us to do that. He's like, you're just the house that I wanted to be a visual to the world. Are people watching you? What do they see when they look at you? Now, you may think, I don't really have any influence. Like, if that were Todd, like, I totally get that. He gets to go all these places and meet all these people, but me? But Todd would say to you, I would say to you, that God has strategically placed you in just the place that he wants you to be in influence. Like you can interact with people and go places that Todd can't. You might be a second grade teacher. You might be a high school Spanish teacher. You might be a speech pathologist or a real estate agent. You might be a property appraiser. You might be a mom. You might be a buyer for JCPenney, physical therapist, a nurse. God has you just where he wants you. I was in one of your groups a couple of weeks ago, and one of you said, I'm an administrator, I'm an admin, and I look at my friends, and a lot of them are like, have way more glamorous jobs than I do, and it's real easy to compare myself. And she said, then I've realized I'm exactly where God wants me to be. And she is exactly right. So when people in your family or at school or at work look at you, What do they see? You are bringing the presence of God with you wherever you go. It's how I came to Christ. 
When I was in high school, I had a handful of friends that were believers in Christ. And I just saw how they treated each other, how they treated people. I saw how they reacted when hard stuff happened. And I saw in them this confidence, kind of this peace. And I looked at them and I was like, I want what they have. People notice you. I did. God says, I love you. I want to live with you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to never be separated from you. I'll go to the greatest lengths. God says, I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you will know that I'm always with you. And I value you so much that I want to use you to be a visible reminder to the world of who I am. And I'm going to resource you with my spirit so that you'll be part of what I'm doing. You know, ultimately, we are going to live forever with Jesus. We're going to see him face to face. And Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. To live forever with him. We've staked our lives on the truth of that, and it's going to be worth it that we will live forever with a God who will never get tired of you. He thinks you're beautiful because he made you. He wants the best from you. And he will never, ever be separated from you because he loves you. Will you pray with me? Lord, how we thank you that, Lord, you are so complex and detailed. It's bigger than we can even understand. But Lord, that you are also simple enough that a little child can understand who you are. Lord, will you just take all the complex details and just place them to the side where they belong, Lord, and let us look at you face to face tonight. Lord, I pray for all of us, for me, that as I walk through this week, I will be mindful of the greatness of the sacrifice that, that you made on my behalf. And Lord, that, that I will remember that it's only through you that, that we have this open relationship, that we can come into your presence anytime. And Lord, will you remind us that you love us, that you care for us, and that we'll never be separated from you. We pray all those things and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Amen.